Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. Lord, open our eyes. We might see you. Our ears, Lord, that we would hear you. And our hearts, Lord. Amen. So I started running this year. I got into running after taking a 12-year hiatus. So the last time that I was running, uh, Noah was a baby. And um, the very first time that I went out, Greg took me out on a trail run, and I tripped on a root, and I, I mean, like, just dramatic splat on the trail. And I got these humongous bruises, like a bruise this big on my leg and another one on my ego. And I basically was like, Greg, I'm not doing that again. (laughs) That's it. I tried it once and I am done. Running is not for me. At the heart of the book of Ruth is an ancient Hebrew marriage law that we're going to get into today and we're going to explore it. And sometimes when we read texts like this from scripture, that revolve around gender norms and marriage practices that are unfamiliar to us as 21st century readers, it can be a little bit like my experience running. We trip on something in the story, we fall on our face and we're like, that's it, enough with this. The Bible is repressive and regressive and I don't want anything to do with that. And so I want to start off this morning by helping us just giving us a brief framework to help us engage with this story without tripping. So the first thing that I want to do is acknowledge that when we come to a text like this, some of us have some feelings about it. We have an emotional response. So I studied uh, Sub-Saharan African politics, culture, and identity in college. That was my concentration. And I wrote a whole paper on cultural practices that African women's rights groups were whistleblowing, including the very marriage practice that we're going to read about today in Ruth. So when I come to this passage, I have some feelings. I have an emotional response to what I'm reading, and it's subconscious. I just feel something about it. And so the first thing to do is just acknowledge we have feelings about things that we read that are unfamiliar or different, and we have these reactions. But the second step is to recognize that our reactions, our feelings, they're coming from our experience in this moment, not from Ruth's experience in her moment. And so it's really important to understand what's actually being said in the book of Ruth. So here's three quick reminders that will help us, I think, avoid the roots and not trip. So the first reminder, patriarchy is a product of the fall. Patriarchy is a product of the fall. When I say patriarchy, what I mean by that is men ruling over women and abusing power in a way that harms women. I am not using that word as code for I think all men should be Kens like in the Barbie movie, okay? That is not what I mean by that. I mean patriarchy where men are abusing their power over women. That did not exist in the garden, It didn't exist. Adam and Eve existed in harmonious, vulnerable partnership with one another in the garden. We see the roots of patriarchy after the fall in Genesis 3. After the fall, God describes what life will be like for Adam and Eve now that they have sinned and sin has entered the human existence. This is commonly referred to as the curse, this place where God is telling them what life will be like right now. And in Genesis 3.16, God says this to Eve. He says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This statement is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's descriptive of what has happened now that sin is in the middle of the picture. This is what happens. This is the damage done to male and female partnership because of sin. So reminder number one, Patriarchy is a product of the fall. It's not part of God's design. 
Second reminder, God's law is given to people living in a world damaged by sin. And within that context, God's law is designed to preserve and protect God's original intent for humanity as much as possible. And so I asked Greg, who's like the metaphor king, for a metaphor here. Like, Greg, help me get a metaphor to explain what I mean here. And he said, well, the Old Testament law is kind of like scuba gear. Okay, let's see where you're going with this. It might be really clunky and ugly and uncomfortable and unnecessary when you're walking around on land, just like this marriage law seems to us. But when you get thrown underwater, it's a lifesaver. So after the fall, the relationship between men and women got thrown under the water of sin. Patriarchy happened. And we're talking not just the patriarchy that we experienced. We're talking an ancient civilization's version of patriarchy. Women had no way to breathe. And so God's law in that context is actually a mercy. And Andrew will explain exactly how this particular practice is a mercy. But the point is that what rings as damaging and patriarchal to my 21st century enlightened, liberated ears actually is at this time for these people a great mercy that protects the vulnerable and keeps these women from drowning. I think of it like God leaving a trail of breadcrumbs from where we have gotten ourselves all messed up with sin, a trail of breadcrumbs back to the garden to his original intent and forward to the renewal of all things where things will be made right again. So second reminder, God's law comes into a world damaged by sin. And then finally, it's helpful to remember that the book of Ruth is not designed to teach us about women, about gender norms, about dating or marriage. Lots of people try to make this about dating and marriage, but that's not actually the point of this book. It's merely the backdrop. And so with that, it's obviously time now to talk about Blood and Barley, chapter two, Blood and Barley. I recognize that we're about to give you like 10 minutes of preface before we even touch that page that's in front of you, Ruth 3. I want to really invite you to hold on. Guys, we're not that kind of church that's going to give you three wellness tips, bathe it in Jesus and walk out. Amen? We're okay going deep, right? All right, here we go. So let's recap where we've been. This is critical. If you've missed the last couple of weeks, if you're not super familiar with the Ruth, with Ruth, with the Ruth, and let me just say this, there is a reason that Sarah opened the message like that. Here we go. Chapter one opens with the line, remember from week one, in the day when the judges ruled. This reminds us of this incredibly dark and difficult day in the book of Judges there was absolute brokenness and wreckage. And one of the powerful highlights of the Ruth story is that in the midst of so much confusion and so much brokenness and so much oppression and so much sin, there was a faithful people. There was a faithful family. There was a faithful story that God was blessing and his purposes were being accomplished through. So we find an Israelite family in Bethlehem, Elimelech, Naomi, and sons struggling to survive through a famine in search of food. They move to a place called Moab. Can you say Moab? This was Israel's ancient enemy. There the father, Elimelech, dies, and the sons marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. Uh, And then those two die. So all the men in the story die, which I don't believe is some sort of moral takeaway, but, you know, people may go there. So with no, with no reason then now to stay with her family, with her husbands and sons now gone, and hearing that there is actually an end to the famine coming back in her homeland as they are living in this foreign uh, uh, land, they move back. She moves back. She knows that life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be hard, going to be really, really difficult but better than in Moab. And so Naomi, at this point, the central character, invites Orpah and Ruth, her daughter-in-laws. 
So not, I mean, even to this day, right, we would say, well, they're not blood. And, and if that were to happen, often the drift happens with the in-law. And she tries to encourage them, invite them, plead with her two daughters-in-law to stay in Moab. You're Moabite women. You're going to be better off here. You can marry again. You don't want to come back with me. It's going to be so hard. Orpah goes, you're right, it is going to be hard. Cries, gives her a kiss, and then stays in Moab. But Ruth decides to stay with Naomi and the famous lines, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And so Ruth and Naomi head back. You still tracking with me? They head back to Bethlehem. It's in that moment, though, that Naomi is aware of just how jacked up her circumstances is. And as is custom, she says, just change my name to Mara, which means bitter. And she just laments her absolutely tragic fate. But what's interesting again here in Ruth is here is that Ruth has the opposite response. Her commitment to go back with Naomi is something truly extraordinary. Nobody would do that, especially a woman who, again, in those days, like Sarah said, had so little legal rights. And without some marital connection to a husband, without some marital connection to a larger clan, she is unprotected and vulnerable, and she's at deep risk of all sorts of exploitation. Why would Ruth do the least sensible thing and bind herself to her mother-in-law, this bitter woman? Ruth one. Ruth two. Chapter two begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where to find food. It just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. Ruth goes out and happens to end up picking grain in the field of Naomi's relative, Boaz, who we're told is a man of noble character, which is a line that's echoed then about Ruth later, a woman of noble character. He notices Ruth, and after finding out her story, this Moabite foreign woman deciding to stay loyal to this Jewish mama who is now a widow and bitter, he is overwhelmed by like her remarkable generosity. And so he makes these special provisions for the immigrant Ruth to gather in the field. He's actually being faithful to the law because the law says, if an immigrant or a foreigner come into your space, let them come behind, like don't go over your fields. Make sure you actually leave some stuff for people who are coming through to be able to survive. And so she does this. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi that he prays God will reward her for her boldness. And we'll come back to this. After Ruth comes home that day, Naomi finds out that she has met Boaz and she's psyched. Why is she so psyched? Not just because there's food, but she knows that Boaz is their family redeemer. And so let's pause. This is what Sarah was alluding to. In the ancient world, when a man dies, his brother or his next closest kinsman, is what they're called, would take on his wife in order to make sure the family line continued. And the woman was protected from any sort of vulnerability or exploitation. Again, very different world. The phrase refers to this cultural practice in Deuteronomy 25, where if a family died and left behind a wife, it was the family, re the family redeemer, this kinsman's responsibility to marry the widow to protect the family. And so Naomi is like, begins to hope that perhaps there's still a future for her family. Some of us seem to not care about this, or for many reasons don't care about this this day and age, but in all sorts of cultures, not just in the ancient Near East, the idea of the bloodline going forward was everything, everything. It was like a curse on your family. It was the end of the line. And so this was a huge thing, not just for the protection of these two women, but that the family line would go on. What we know from Torah built into the legal codes was a series, actually, of all sorts of laws and regulations that essentially said, when you set up your society, build into your laws a provision. A provision, again, when you're harvesting your field, like the foreigner will be taken care of in the refugee. Build into your governance structure, into your way of life, that the people who are most at risk, people who don't have a larger family, won't be exploited and won't be taken advantage of and will be protected. Laws and regulations all over. So when Ruth says, I'm going to go into the field, she's saying, I'm going to go see if someone is following the law of God. And remember, we're in the time of judges, so not a lot of people are doing this. 
Is anyone going to be faithful to God's law to take care of and protect me? In other words, who is going to love? By the way, Jesus and Paul, thousands of years later in the New Testament, these people, we read about how um, the actual, the fullness of the law is fulfilled in Jesus. And he says, the, all of the law and the prophets, Paul says, all of the law and the prophets are functionally about love, about love, about caring for and loving. Fascinating. It was as if the, 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 the kinsman redeemer law and these provisions that existed, we can see, and we'll get to this more in a bit, they're all pointing towards a more just and generous and loving society. So there's a society that has a series of rules built around economic rebirth and freedom so that no one would go hungry, so that the women would be taking care of the most vulnerable. People wouldn't go into debt. Yet their way of life, we think so regressive of these laws, and yet their way of life, I think, raises questions about the world we live in, right? How are we organized? Are we organized in such a way that you care for the most vulnerable? Is our church organized in such a way? Because everything is tilted in favor of the vulnerable and most and at risk. So chapter three starts with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to take up his role that they see as his kinsman redeemer. Will Boaz do the right thing as far as they understand it? Will he follow God's law? Will he go into the heart and spirit of God's law and care for them? And so we read at the beginning, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. So Ruth, in the beginning of three, is going to stop wearing the clothes of a grieving widow and show that she's available to be married again. You know the line, once a mother, always a mother? You ever heard this line? Any moms in the room? Once a mother, always a mother? Is there anyone in the room who is 18 and over, older, and still getting relationship advice from mom? Anybody? <laughs> Reluctant, like, yep. Like, she's still really involved in your marriage. <laughs> This is what Ruth 3 in part is about. So chapter 3, when your mother-in-law gives you really solid dating advice. All right, so we're going to jump in to chapter 3, and we're first going to look at what's happening in this chapter from Ruth's perspective. So verse 1, one day Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. So here's her advice to Ruth. Verse 2, now Boaz with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best dress. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. So a little side note here. Winnowing would be a community event. <clears throat> the men have harvested their barley, then they're bringing it to process it. And so this is hard work. Everyone's doing it at the same time. They're doing it together. When they're finished, they're going to celebrate. They're going to eat and drink and celebrate a job well done and also give thanks for another harvest. And it would be very common for the men then to sleep down there on the threshing floor next to their processed crops. So verse 4, when Boaz lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. So we'll get to the feet thing in a minute. Okay, I'm going to put that aside for just a sec. But I want to zero in first on verse 5. I will do whatever you say. Ruth willingly submits to her mother-in-law's relationship advice. Again, Women, married women in the room, just imagine this scenario. Your husband sadly dies, and your mother-in-law is hatching a plan that involves sneaking around in the middle of the night, and you're like, yeah, I'm all in. That's what's happening here. Why would Ruth say yes to this? Well, remember, this is about survival. This is about survival. Ruth's willingness, her submission, her yes this is a demonstration of love and loyalty to Naomi, to her future, 
to her culture, her people. This is hesed, this picture of God's loyal love. Ruth is saying, essentially, I'll do anything for you, Naomi. I'll do whatever it takes. And it's kind of beautiful because in the beginning, we see that Ruth, uh, Naomi's concern is that Ruth would be provided for. So the two of them are doing this to take care of each other. So verse 7, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Okay, so we have to talk about the feet thing and the blanket. So it's not entirely clear what's going on here. Some have naturally wondered if there's something untoward or sexual in nature happening here, okay? We have a man and a woman lying down together alone at night. We have the uncovering of body parts. We have sharing a blanket. Some people wonder what's going on. But when we read the context, it is very clear. Just joking. Okay. There are kids in the room. <laughs> it's the Bible. Sorry. Um, it's very clear that um, this is, Ruth is not making any kind of advance. This is actually a marriage proposal. She is proposing marriage. So how do we know this? The first way that we know this, she says, spread your garment over me. Whether or not Ruth is literally asking to share Boaz's blankie in the middle of the night, it's important to understand that this was actually a common Hebrew idiom that would have been instantly understand, understood by Boaz. The Hebrew here literally translates, spread your wings over me. And that's a metaphor that's often used for protection. And in the scriptures, it's used for God all the time, right? That God is a mother hen who's gathering her chicks under her wings. Even in Ruth chapter 2, this metaphor is used for protection. But in common Hebrew usage, the, the saying, spread your wings over someone, was actually a euphemism for marriage. It's like saying, let's get hitched. In thousands of years when hitches are not used to attach things, I don't know if that'll be true, but that won't, <laughs> that won't make sense either. And so to us, to a, to a future reader. And so this idea of spread your garment over me, that actually is a marriage proposal. So that's one way we know this is all above board. Secondly, Ruth is invoking Boaz's responsibility as a kinsman redeemer. That reference is 1,000% about marriage and not anything else that we might imagine that it's about. So we can be certain from the context that this encounter is not inappropriate in that way. But here are a few things that it is. Number one, it's risky. It's risky. Think about Ruth. She's a poor, foreign widow. She's approaching a Hebrew man of good standing, uninvited in the middle of the night. Think about the power dynamics, the, the, just the vulnerable position she's putting herself in. This is risky. But it's clear that she trusts both Naomi. She trusts Naomi knows what she's doing. And she trusts Boaz. She knows he's kind. He's not going to take advantage of this situation. So it's risky. Second thing it is, it's bold. Ruth is gutsy. Not only is she this poor, foreign, uninvited widow, but she doesn't even wait for Boaz to speak before popping the question and asking him to marry her. This is bold. But she's doing this as much for Naomi as she is for herself. And I think there's you can all conjure up times that you're willing to do something bold and risky on behalf of somebody else even more than you would be willing to do it on your own. Like the time I did a high ropes course because my kids wanted to. I would never do that for myself, but I'll do it for them. 
Ruth is being bold. And then the last thing, this is going to cost her. This is sacrificial. So Ruth has already left her home and her people to commit herself to Naomi. But marrying a Jewish man, this means there's no turning back. This is Ruth saying, I will forever weave my story into yours. And so what we see here on the threshing floor, what we see in Ruth's actions is hesed. We see her loyalty, her submission, her faithfulness, her willingness to join her story to Naomi's forever. So now, uh, for Boaz's perspective, we're going to move along to chapter four. My feet are cold, and there's a strange woman lying next to me, or where's my blankie? <laughs> this is such a good story. Boldness. Boldness would be the word that, like, exemplifies Ruth. And so, she comes up, reveals the feet, and then asks for his hand in marriage. Where are you, he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a garden redeemer of our family. And Boaz's response, the Lord bless you, my daughter. He offers blessing. It's absolutely remarkable. And it's always a bit hard sometimes as a preacher as somebody who's been in this text and reading commentaries and the, his, the history over the last couple of weeks to like help everybody like catch up or to sometimes realize the remarkable nature of something like that. But Boaz's response to Ruth's actions and to her proposition are just stunning. And his first move, instead of cursing her, shooing her off, we know that he's a man of noble character, that in a time where there are not a lot of people of noble character, in a time where um, so many are not following the path of God and the path of life laid out in the law, he should be incredibly concerned for getting caught with a woman there on the threshing floor with him. And what he does, as soon as he sees that it's her, seems to in no way question her intentions. He blesses her. He uses this word, this um, word for respect and obligation that is translated here in the text as my daughter. So awakened at midnight in an unusual and compromising situation, he knows what Ruth is saying in this veiled speech, and he commends her for it. He commends her for it. And so then he says, this kindness, this kindness, and we're going to come back to this word in a minute that Sarah briefly mentioned there, this word has said, it's greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, we'll get to that in a minute, whether rich or poor, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do all that you ask. It's wild. Ruth, foreign, woman, unmarried, back in Israel, a servant or a handmaiden of this man is now giving the orders. <laughs> you know you know your role. And suddenly what is the ask of the will he, will he follow God's law turns to Boaz saying, I'll do whatever you, I'll do whatever you want. The way you took that blanket off my feet, I'll do whatever you want. <laughs> I told Sarah I might get into trouble in this section. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there actually is another who is more closely related. Not only is he such a man of noble character that he's willing to step into this role, he's like, actually, technically, there's somebody who's closer to you that should do this. Integrity. 
these two people are acting with such boldness and integrity. Two things that are desperately missing in this time in Israel. Two things that are desperately missing in our moment right now. Amen? Boldness and integrity. Doing the right thing. Forsaking the consequences of what it is to do the right thing. Although it's true, I'm a guardian redeemer. There's another more closely related. Stay here for the night. In the morning, um, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. He's like, I got you. So she lay at his feet until morning. She got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. Right? We've heard that she actually now, foreign, Moabite, woman, unmarried, has this positive reputation we just read about in the town. He's as concerned about his own reputation as he is of hers. And then he also said, bring me the shawl that you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. And then he went back into town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Like, give me the details. Then she told me, then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, Annie gave me six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. You know the old line about like dating a guy, like look and see how that guy treats his mom, right? Pay attention to that relationship and you'll know if you like got a good one or not. Yeah, Boaz knows what he's doing. He's on his game. It's like, let me take care of your mom for you. And then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until, uh, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled. Like she knows his integrity. Makes me wonder how much Naomi knew or had a hunch of before this whole thing started. This guy, he's gonna do the right thing. And so to go back to that exchange there where he says, your kindness is blowing me away. It's even greater than the kindness I saw before. I want to circle back to the word of the day last week, which continues to be the word of the day today. And it is this word chesed. Will you say chesed? So to chapter five, words to get tattooed on your body. The word here for kindness is chesed. And when people who wrote down the Bible, inspired by the Spirit, wrote the Bible down, meditated on the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character as compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, faithful, and overflowing with loyal love. We could do a day-long Bible study just on this word and not even scratch the surface how often it directly comes up, its Greek counterpart comes up, or it's exemplified again and again. 127 times in the Psalm, 46 times in Genesis to 2 Kings, 26 times in the prophets, 13 times in the wisdom literature that's just in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. Has said, like we talked about last week, is this incredibly difficult word to translate into any language. It combines a bunch of ideas. Love, generosity, enduring commitment all into one. Love, generosity, and enduring commitment all into one. It's a sweet word. It's an act of promise, keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep, hear this, motivated by deep personal care. It's a strong word. It's a courageous word. It's a lay down your life for somebody word. It's a lay down your preferences for someone else word. It's expressed in the scriptures via God as forgiving of sins in Psalm 103. The goodness of God in Psalm 118, not allowing his people to be destroyed in lamentations. Human has said in the scriptures is expressed by doing justice and honoring God's commands and caring for those around you. Has said is a character trait that motivates forgiveness and protection. And again, this word loyalty. So for the sake of the rest of this series, chesed equals loyal love. It's like that moment when you know you deserve the worst and you get the best. It's that moment when someone actually keeps their promise in a world full of broken ones. It's when someone actually fulfills their commitments. 
all throughout the scriptures, God is loyal and loving for no other reason other than that's just who God is. When you can appeal to someone's character, not just their track record, it's a powerful thing. Of course, he wants people to respond with chesed in return. But even when they don't, God's loyal love, God's chesed remains. Like it says in the Psalms, God's chesed endures forever. And that's the word. That's the word and the actions that govern and guide the whole book of Ruth. If you get nothing out of this four-part series, get this word into your bones. And right here in this dialogue between Boaz and Ruth, Boaz praises Ruth for her remarkable demonstration of said. He literally says, your act of loyal love of said of kindness, is better than the first. The first one being what? You left your homeland. You left what would have been the comfort and protection of Moab and bound yourself to a bitter old mother-in-law because you knew the, the way of the Lord. You knew what was the, the ultimate right thing. Not even just the right thing on paper, but the spirit of the law. She cares more for Naomi and the family line than her own satisfaction. This is powerful. Boaz goes, Naomi, I mean, goes, Ruth, you could have gone and been legally with a bunch of other guys. Clearly, Boaz isn't like, like the youngest guy in the room. <laughs> it's like there were much younger guys, much more handsome guys. You could have gone another route. You could have taken care of yourself. Instead, you again chose not yourself, but you chose Naomi. You chose the family line. You chose faithfulness. And he sees that this is even greater. It exemplifies, typifies, magnifies your character and your commitment. This exchange is absolutely incredible. And when you read stories like this in the Bible, you're always looking for larger themes. The way the story fits into the larger story. You want to pay attention to the words like redeemer and loving and godly decisions. And so it's here in the heart of chapter three, in this absolutely fascinating exchange, that all of the lights on your dashboard, at least those of you who've been around the Bible for a while, might be going off. So as we begin to close this, we're going to turn to chapter six, dashboard lights. This story, like so many in the Old Testament, points us clearly and directly to Jesus. The parallels here are undeniable. And this makes sense because God reveals himself to us through his word. His word teaches us about his character and who he is. But the ultimate revelation of God is in Jesus. Jesus is our best, most comprehensive, most accessible picture of who God is and what God is like. So it makes sense that what these Old Testament stories teach us about God echo and reverberate in the life of Jesus. In the book of Ruth, it's not difficult to draw a connection between Boaz and Jesus. Clearly, Jesus is our ultimate kinsman redeemer. When we were poor, destitute, without hope and dying, he spread his garment over us and grafted us into his lineage. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We are his bride. We belong to him. Our past is redeemed and our future is secure. So Boaz images Christ for us. But as it turns out, Ruth also images Jesus for us. For love for Hesed, Jesus leaves heaven, his homeland, and joins his story to ours forever. He willingly submits to the Father's will, to the limitations of human existence, and even to death in order to secure a better future for us. 
Like Ruth to Naomi, he says to us, I'll do anything for you. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll even die for you. And so the beautiful thing about this story is that both Boaz and Ruth point us to Jesus. Each of them show us something about what Jesus is like. Ruth submitting and surrendering, Boaz redeeming and covering. Through the marriage of Ruth and Boaz, Naomi and her entire bloodline are preserved, including generations later, a poor refugee family who laid their baby in a Bethlehem manger. And through the marriage of heaven and earth in that baby, in Jesus, fully human, fully divine, humanity's bloodline is preserved. Naomi's descendant is a human being who now sits on the throne of heaven forever. The poetry here is just incredible. When we join our story to Jesus, he spreads his garment over us and ensures that we are not erased by sin and death, but woven into the life of the ages with him. And so with Jesus, we're back to said, Ruth. Ruth is the truth is, is powerful and Boaz is powerful, but Jesus is the true and better Ruth. Jesus is the true and better Boaz. When confronted with loyal love, we are confronted with Christ. Will we say yes or no? Jesus shows us this said in the garden, presented, presenting to God, saying, God, I don't want to go to the cross. Well, would you take this cup, but not my will, but yours? Obedience, where you go, I will go, and where you send me, I will send me. We see both Ruth and Boaz, this said, kicking around in the very character of God exemplified in Jesus. And so that loyal love, it confronts us just like it did Ruth and just like it did Boaz and just like it did Jesus, just like it did Joseph in the Christmas story with a, with a question. Will you say yes or will you say no to it? Will you act in accordance with it? Will you lay down your life? A phrase I love at Advent is the phrase make room. Will you make room? That's what so much of the season of Advent is about. We even rearrange the furniture in our house. We rearrange our living rooms to make room for trees and wreaths. We rearrange our outdoor landscaping to make room for giant blow-up Frosties. Do you notice, do you notice all of the yeses in the story? I think when we read the Bible, we're like, yeah, of course everyone says yes. Like, it's not true. Most of the Bible is people doubting God, throwing stuff at God, saying no constantly, choosing death instead of life. And we have here in the midst of a broken world, not far different from ours, where there was confusion and people were trusting in their own way is how Ruth opens and Judges closes. We have a bunch of powerful yeses in Boaz, even in Naomi saying yes to the openness and possibility of her bitterness going away. And we see it especially exemplified in Ruth. Yes, there is so much room made, space for this loyal love. All these characters are going way beyond what's expected of them. They are not just following God's law, but seem to be incredibly in tune with the spirit of it. With the spirit of it. This is what Jesus says the law is all about. All of these old stories are all about. He says to his disciples, it is all about loving God and loving neighbor. A way of saying all of this, all of this, this whole story is about me. And so our invitation today is to say yes to Hesed. We were going to get t-shirts made, but to say yes to Hesed. In some way, this, the, the invitation behind every invitation you have ever heard in a sermon or a church service is this. Will you say yes to this love? When we experience the purity and power of God's loyal love shown through Jesus, it compels us to reimagine why and how we can show Hesed back to God and to the people around us.
And so there is a story that we want to end with today. It's a story Sarah is going to share, one from her life, and one that she has to mask a bit because it's a live story. Um, It's a story that she was a bit reluctant even to share because it's one that shows how she and her family are wrestling and responding, responding to this hesed. And they're responding really well, in my opinion. (laughs) It's a story that deeply parallels the story of Ruth. And in some ways, she won't even be able to share all of that publicly. But I want to preface this because it's always a bit awkward to offer up an example, like when you're a preacher, to offer up an example of how you are doing like pretty well with something. So I want to do that for her. But we think this story might kind of bring this home for us. I help put some flesh on this word and open us up to considering the room that God wants to make in each of our hearts this morning. Hey church, it's Sarah. At this point in the sermon, I told a story that is too sensitive to post publicly online, but the gist is that it's about adoption. It's about a willingness to submit to the Lord and do whatever he asks of us. And ultimately it's a story about choosing to connect our lives to someone else for the sake of their flourishing. Yeah, and so we just want to invite you today to ask if you don't already know. My hunch is that there's some of you that are sitting there and you know exactly the invitation is this morning for you. Maybe you've grown so bitter and callous, you don't know what it is to make room for people anymore. You're on one end of the spectrum. Maybe for others, there's actually something really specific. There is an invitation to love in a very specific way to a very specific person or situation. You see, this word has said plays really well on our directions. What is it to trust and receive God's loyal love for us as the upward direction. But just trust. Like we talked about last week, you have to know your role if you're gonna have a healthy soul at all. And your role is to receive, not initiate. Receive the fact, own the fact. It's like, it's just tough luck. I'm sorry if you don't want it. God loves you. He died on the cross for you. He has moved toward you. You can say yes to that or not. The inward path is a recognition of how that loyal love begins to set us free and heal us from all of the bitterness of Naomi, all of the ache, all of the ways that we distance ourselves or we create these situations of shame and guilt in our heart, not trusting that we are who God says that we are. And then there is the outward direction, which seems pretty clear here. Where are you being invited to make room, not just this Christmas season, but in your life. The first church grew like wildfire and you can mostly like tap it all back, follow all the trails back to this word, sacrificial love that did not look like the rest of the world. Friends, we have followers of Jesus who are like moaning and groaning just like everybody else over a bridge closure. Goodness gracious. God's inviting us to so much more. Kill your cynicism and step into the love of the ages, the love of heaven that we have access to now to allow it to form us and transform us and move us to radical abandon. May we be so tired and discontented with the church looking like and responding like everybody else in our world. Amen? Anybody else feel that discontent? I'm over it. Let us be over it together. And withward, I have no other place to go. Withward, and our family, where is there healing that needs to happen in here? Where has there been backstabbing or gossip in your family or in our church family? Where has there been brokenness or disconnection that God wants to heal, to put us back together? And so we're just going to open the altar for a few minutes. All that means for those that are new is just open up this space, create some room. You can come forward if you like. You can stay right where you are. Kneel, you can stand and sing. 
What I want to encourage you to not do is sit on the sidelines. Don't grab your phone. Don't turn to your neighbor. Like, let's, unless it's like, I need to talk to you about this. And let's lean in for a few minutes together. God can do in a few moments, if we're really open to him, what it takes us and our white knuckling to do in years. Where are you being invited to make room? Where are you being invited to say yes? This, right, is the Christmas narrative. This is Mary, when confronted with the angel, saying, may your word be fulfilled. It's Mary's yes to this overwhelming, daunting ask of the angel. May it be, may your word to me, she says to the angel, be fulfilled. She submits, she trusts. It's like the echoes of her great, 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 great grandma Ruth are like echoing around in her heart and soul. They're in the bloodline. This family's loyal. To respond to the loyal love of God who keeps his promises and fulfills the ache of a weary world. To say yes to this loyal love, to move towards it, to receive it, to move the furniture around in your house. This, maybe this is that moment. However small or however big. Would you pray with me, Lord? We just ask, Holy Spirit, that you come. Would you come? Shake, shake, Lord, who needs to be shaken? Comfort those that need to be comforted. May shame, Lord, just flee from this space. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. May we like breathe deep of the love, the loyal love, Lord, that is ours in you. And may we find it illuminating like details, specific ways you're inviting us to love. Lord, heal relationships between fathers and sons and mothers and daughters where there is such little love and loyalty, Lord. Would you heal, Lord, the relationships that exist between families, Lord? God, would you open us up to something more radical, a rad more radical way to be to expand our definition of kinship and family, Lord? Would you lead us, Lord, into generosity for those around us? towards all these foster children. I pray for all the like entrepreneurs, the apostles in the room, those that are filled in moments like this, a vision of what the church could be, Lord. Would you enliven their imagination for how we can grow in this, Lord? And so we give you these next five minutes, these last few minutes together. We give them to you, Lord. We don't race out, Lord. We race towards the altar. And Lord, we make room for you. We make room for you. We make room for you. Would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you come, Holy Spirit?